I'd like to invite the rest of you to turn back again in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13, and we're going to be here today and next Sunday also. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 14. While you're turning there, uh, let me just uh, kind of remind you of a couple of things. Um, some things are so important. You know, the scripture says that uh, the word of God is sown like seed. And uh, as soon as the sower begins to sow that seed, uh, among other things, the enemy comes and snatches it away. You ever notice how it's harder to hang on to scripture and remember scripture than uh, many other things? Uh, and to really get the, the words of God built into our lives is because we have someone who opposes that. You can learn a lot of other things and the devil doesn't care, but he really cares if you build the word of God into your life. So there's opposition there. And uh, so we have to go back and look at things again and again to get them kind of reinforced. And one of the things that I said last week and I want to remind you of again this morning uh, is that it is very important that we understand from the Scriptures who Jesus is. We really need to have that built into our hearts and minds so that we have a biblical view of Jesus Christ. Um, if we don't, among other things, we'll be worshiping an idol. If you have recreated Christ in your own image, in your own imagination, you're going to be worshiping the wrong Jesus. That's a problem. Uh, and secondly, if you have misunderstanding about who Jesus is, uh, it's going to lead uh, you to make wrong choices. Because we make choices out of our deeply held beliefs and convictions as a Man thinks in his heart, so is he. In other words, so he acts. And uh, what's going on in our belief is what governs the choices that we make. And if we have wrong beliefs about Christ, uh, then we're going to be making wrong choices in our, in our journey, in our walk, because we're going to misunderstand uh, how Jesus can come alongside of us and help us, or we're going to doubt uh, things that uh, the scripture says he is plainly able to do for us. Last week we looked at the wilderness temptation and we looked at the reality of Jesus' humanity and the genuineness of temptations. If he did not really experience genuine temptation, then this whole uh, story is a charade. You know, it's, it's not true. But the fact is, he did experience temptation, and the enemy came at him in such a way that the writer of Hebrews says he was tempted in all manner, in all descriptions, just like we are, and yet he was successful. Therefore, we can come boldly to his throne and find grace to help in time of need. And that's, it's very important that we recognize that Jesus really understands our deepest difficulties. And he is not one we should run from in time of trouble. 
but one that we should run to because he really cares and understands and can provide help. This morning, we're going to uh, look at this section again, and we're going to look at it from the standpoint of the nature of the temptations that he faced. And so as we read it again, uh, think about that. What kinds of temptations did he face? Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, Luke 4, 1, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell the stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all of this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. Now, before we get into this, I'd like to take you to one other passage of Scripture. 1 John, way in the back, right before Revelation. 1 John, chapter 2. If you could turn there with me in your Bibles. 1 John, chapter 2, and uh, beginning in verse 15. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Uh, John says some interesting things here about the pull of the world. And I think we will see the parallels in the temptation of Jesus Christ in the things that John describes. John, 1 John 2, 15, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world... The love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. We go back and we look at the temptations that Jesus faced in particular. And the first one that the devil comes at him with is, if you're the Son of God, turn this stone into bread. Now, just as an aside, uh, I was interested to learn as I was reading some of the background on the passage that in this area where Jesus was probably... Uh, moving around in the wilderness, the geology is peculiar. And among other things, many of the stones that lie out in the open on top of the ground are tannish brown in color and shaped like uh, 
small loaves. They look like bread. And uh, the particular person who was writing about this had been there, and he said it's remarkable that uh, these things look like loaves of bread that are, you know, just scattered around on the ground. So there was already the appearance. Add to that where Jesus was in this period of temptation. Many people, when they read this and see that he fasted for 40 days, think, wow, that's a miracle. No human being could do that. But, in fact, that's not true. Um, Moses fasted for 40 days. Uh, Others in Scripture have fasted for 40 days. And uh, many people within the church in our modern times, I have a friend who every January would begin the first of every year with a 40-day fast. And uh, he would spend that 40 days fasting into February uh, as a way of preparing himself spiritually for the year. I uh, learned of a fasting clinic uh, down in Texas where uh, people who struggle with um, the accumulation of toxins or uh, who are significantly overweight can, can go and be led through a process of medicinal fasting where they are not eating anything for up to 90 days. It just depends on how much food you're carrying around with you. (laughs) You know, that you have the reserve as to how long you can go. But people who are um, kind of experts in this area say that there's one thing that happened, well, a couple things that happened physiologically. Uh, I have done some extended fasting, not 40 days, But I can tell you that the first part is accurate. After four or five days, you stop wanting to eat. Your whole body kind of converts over. Um, The body begins to break down fats and consume the excess, and your stomach gets used to being empty and not going through the cycle of eating and emptying and all that kind of stuff. And so you, you just stop being hungry after a while. And you remain that way, largely kind of dormant, until you reach a certain point. And those who are experts in this field say that when you have a return of hunger, that is a critical moment, because you have reached the end of all of your reserves. Your body is now beginning to consume healthy tissue, it's beginning to break down muscle and other things, you are truly starving at that point. And to say that Jesus was famished would not be an exaggeration. By the time he got to this point and reached the end of the 40 days, he became hungry. You know, and when you understand the physiology of what had transpired, you understand that this return of hunger, he became hungry, meant that he was now starving. He was desperately hungry. He needed to eat. He was also weak. Um, Several books that I have on the subject suggest that when you plan an extended fast, you don't plan to do anything. You intentionally become sedentary during that period of time. And uh, take it easy, because you don't want to uh, excessively consume calories. You want to give your body time to 
to take care of itself. But Jesus is in the wilderness. He's not in a place where you can exactly relax. Um, you know, he's got to be moving about to a certain extent. And he is at a critical moment where he is exhausted, he is physically weak, and he is now famished. Oftentimes, friends, this is when the devil comes to us. When we've kind of reached our natural end. Uh, whatever realm that's in. Uh, we're at the breaking point. We're spent. And in that moment, we are very vulnerable. And the enemy, having no love for human beings, uh, usually attacks heaviest when we're weakest. Because it's a, it's a prime time to bring us down. And that's when he attacked Jesus. And uh, notice that the temptation came in the form of, you're, you're the Son of God. If you're, if you're really the Son of God, you have power. You can make these stones bread. Now, I don't know how much Jesus knew of his upcoming ministry in terms of details at this point in time, uh, or when those miracles were going to begin to be performed. But do you remember his first miracle? It was at a wedding in Cana of Galilee when he turned water into wine. In other words, his very first miracle was changing the physical molecular structure of one kind of matter into something entirely different. The capacity to make a stone into a loaf of bread was not a problem. In fact, when he fed the 5,000, and again, when he fed the 4,000, he took a limited amount of food, began to break it and distribute it, and it kept multiplying, uh, coming out of their hands. Uh, they kept breaking it off, and there was always something more to break as they handed out this food. And so Jesus has the capacity to control the elements under the Father's direction. So the temptation here is not something that is beyond his ability, nor is it illegitimate for him to have this need and need and want to eat. This is a legitimate need. The other thing we need to recognize is that God has designed us with certain needs. They're not sinful. They're natural. We, we get hungry, we get thirsty, we get cold, we get hot, we need to rest. Um, we have a desire to procreate and carry out the race and a natural sex drive. God built these things into human beings, and when he built it into us in creation, he said, this is very good. It's not the need that is the problem or the fact that he was hungry. The problem here is that he is being tempted to fulfill a legitimate desire outside of the parameters of God's will and purposes. One of the things that kept going through my mind as I was meditating on this passage is that one of the fruit or fruits of the Holy Spirit is self 
control. The Holy Spirit empowers us in His abiding presence with self-control. If we yield to Him, we do not have to give in to rash behavior. You know, we don't have to act out of character as a child of God. We can behave appropriately. Jesus, even though he was extremely hungry, had the capacity to behave like a perfect gentleman in total control because of the presence of the Holy Spirit in his life. And he was capable of waiting on the Father's provision. The temptation is rife with the idea that if God really loved you, He would be taking care of you right now. You wouldn't be so hungry, and you have the ability, why don't you do this for yourself? It's legitimate. You need food. Do this for yourself. And I don't know exactly what went through Jesus' mind when he faced that question, but Luke tells us he was being led about by the Holy Spirit, and I suspect that Jesus kind of said, Father... What is your desire for me? And I suspect that what he heard was, not yet. I'll take care of you, but this is not for you to do for yourself. The temptation to be independent and go outside of God's will is what he's confronted with. And Jesus quotes scripture back to the devil. He says, it is written... Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. If we could just get our arms around that for a bit. You know, we have legitimate physical needs. But more important is a relationship and a walk with God where we are in fellowship with Him. To hear His words, to experience His guidance, to know His presence. Jesus said this over and over again, if you're really thirsty, if you're really thirsty, come to Me. I have living water. I can go beyond your physical need and meet you at the deepest level. And here... Man shall not live by bread alone, but by the very words that come out of the mouth of God. This is the real need of human beings. And so, with that, he turned away from the temptation to turn the bread, or the stones, into bread. And so, Matthew tells us that he next took him to a high mountain. Luke simply says he took him up, uh, took him up uh, to a place and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. Now, I really believe that at this point in time, uh, some supernatural things begin to occur. Um, the first one is uh, Jesus is just there in the wilderness, and there's rocks on the ground, and turn these stones to bread. Uh, nothing supernatural yet, except... The devil's there. That's pretty um, supernatural in and of itself. He's manifesting himself. But in this second one, he goes up to this high place 
and the devil shows him all the kingdoms of the world. I don't think this was imaginary just in his mind. Uh, I really think that the devil took him to one of the highest points coming up out of the Jordan Valley, and that uh, from that vantage point, he showed him a panorama of all the kingdoms and nations of the world, and that that ability to see that was supernatural, because I don't care how high you get, you can't see over the curve of the earth at a certain point. I mean, you can be on Everest, and you can still only see so far to the horizon, but there's something else going on here that opens his eyes. Incidentally, uh, some years ago, uh, a fellow that uh, worked at uh, Northrop um, Laboratories gave me a uh, photograph that was taken from a satellite image from outer space of the, of the world. And as I studied that photograph, I noticed that you could uh, see all of the continents. There are not very many vantage points outside of the earth that you can be and see all of the continents. But you could see the edge, at least the edge, of every continent, including Australia and Antarctica, in that particular picture. And guess what was right in the middle of it? Israel. In the globe, the Sinai Peninsula and the Mediterranean and Israel were right in the center of the map. And I've always associated that uh, particular picture with this temptation, because I, I think that the devil took him up to a place and as he kind of led him around to look at all the panoramic view in 360 degrees, he showed him all the kingdoms of the world, not just the Roman Empire, but he saw into Russia and China and uh, the um, East Asian islands, and he saw into Australia and Africa and South America and North America. He, he saw into Europe. He saw all the kingdoms, all the glories, the, the Chinese dynasties of thousands of years ago. I think that he was able to see all of those kingdoms. <clears throat> and the temptation was, these are mine. I have authority over these, the devil says. I'm going to get into that more next week, because that's really part of next week's sermon. But I have authority, and I can give them to you. And if you'll bow down and worship me, you don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to suffer. You don't have to win these nations through the church one person at a time, one century at a time. You can shortcut this whole process. You can avoid all the, the pain, and I'll just give you these kingdoms if you'll bow down and worship me. You know, offering him the kingdoms of the world is kind of like the, the, the far extreme of offering him wealth and possession uh, just so that he can have uh, the things. We need to recognize that the desire for certain material needs is also legitimate. Notice in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus is talking about not worrying about the future. 
that he says, don't worry about what you're going to wear and about what you're going to eat because your father knows that you need these things. Not that you want them, but that you need them. And the recognition that we need certain things and that we should work or in some fashion acquire them is normal. It's natural. But we have a problem ever since the fall, ever since Adam and Eve turned away from God. And that problem is in turning away from God to become independent, our desire is to accumulate things that will give us security, that will satisfy our desires, and that will lead us toward greater and greater independence from God. People view that in different ways. Some people like to own stuff because it they think that it's going to satisfy them and make them happy. Some people would rather have large bank accounts and savings accounts and investments because they feel like I will never have need as long as I have reserve. Uh, some people just want to have stuff around them because it gives them a feeling of freedom and independence. And the scripture warns us that as soon as we begin to accumulate things, we come into a peculiar kind of temptation and that temptation is to exercise our independence apart from God and to not depend on Him to have our needs met, but rather to depend upon ourselves. In fact, we want to build security around us so that we can not have to worry about the future. Again, going back to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear. These are the things unbelievers worry about. But your Father knows you need them. And the question is, can I trust God to provide them? And can I wait on His timing? Some people want to accumulate salaries years in advance so they can uh, have plenty of cushion. And God says, can you wait on my timing? Can you trust me? And the problem is not to have things. The problem is the temptation to depend upon those things for our independence rather than God. Some people want to go way beyond just the things they need and would like to horrendous things. They want to amass vast amounts of wealth. Uh, they want to have great material possessions. Did you see uh, this past week or so that the fellow that um, developed the application, the app Snapchat, was offered three billion dollars for it 
by Facebook, apparently. $3 billion for an app where you can send a picture to a friend that will disappear in three to five seconds after they open it. Those apps are not designed for texting, by the way. They're designed for something a little more lewd in nature so that the evidence doesn't remain on the phone. And this guy has offered $3 billion. I'm astounded. But what's even more astonishing is he turned it down. He wanted even more. He wants a bigger opportunity. Do you know how much $3 billion is? That's 3,000 million. You could start spending a million dollars a day right now, and it would take you nearly 10 years at a million dollars a day to spend $3 billion. You can't even spend $3 billion. Go buy a 747, buy a big yacht, uh, buy a half a dozen houses, one on every continent, uh, buy estates, buy whatever you want. You've still got billions left over. What are you going to do with all of that? It's amazing. Greed drives the hearts of men and women. I want stuff. The lust of the eyes. And Satan comes to Jesus and says, you don't have to pay the price. You don't have to go through the suffering. I'll just give it to you. All you got to do is sign up on my team. I want you to think about that the next time you're really craving for something and you're willing to do just about anything to get it. Whose team are you signing up? Who are you following? That's what the devil's saying. I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you. But I have to be your Lord. Bow down and worship me. And Jesus responds to him again from the scriptures. And he says, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. You know, it's not that wealth is evil. It's the love of wealth that's evil. Some people... Uh, have become very wealthy. Many years ago, I had the privilege of visiting in the home of Art DeMoss. It happened as it was uh, by unfortunate circumstance that I was there the last two days of his life. After we left that Saturday afternoon, he died that evening of a heart attack. Art DeMoss uh, had started out as a door-to-door -door blanket salesman and had become a multimillionaire. He owned a beautiful estate home outside of Philadelphia. Uh, he had a um, commercial kitchen in his home that was capable of preparing meals for hundreds of people. And he would have sit-down dinners for hundreds of people at a time. Um, Art DeMoss was a man who, he began a ministry among others called Executive Ministries. And it was his mission in life to reach the up-and-outers of society, 
Um, he desired to touch the CEOs of major corporations and to share his testimony with them and introduce them uh, to his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In fact, he wrote a little book called God's Secret for Success, and the essence of that was to spend the first hour of every day in God's presence and to make him the Lord of your life. And it was his desire to share Christ with people that I can't reach. I can't call up the CEO of 3M and say, hey, uh, let's have lunch. We'd like to visit with you. But Art DeMoss could. And he could have those kind of people to his home. Uh, his living room had this beautiful black and white uh, marble floor with two grand pianos in it that did not in any way overwhelm the room. Uh, one on each end with plenty of space in the middle. Uh, but it was into that environment that he could bring uh, the up-and-outers of the world. And because he was on their level, he was able to connect with them and share Jesus Christ with them. He gave away millions of dollars um, to Christian mission and investment. Art DeMoss was not a man who wanted to hang on to his riches. He wanted to use them under the lordship of Jesus Christ as an investment in the kingdom. There was another man a hundred years earlier, George Mueller, who also had millions of dollars passed through his hands. But you'd hardly know it of George Mueller. He lived his whole life not knowing hardly where his next meal was coming from. He never kept any more than he absolutely needed to live day by day. He never had a savings account. He never had a bank account. He never stashed money away. He never planned for retirement. He just lived every day in dependence upon Jesus Christ. But he was able to pray for missions and missionaries and enterprise of the kingdom all over the world. And in praying for that, he was able to give millions of dollars away because he purposed never to keep any of it. I've often wondered... <laughs> how much money God would trust me with if I decided I would never use a dime of it myself. Well, I'm not a very wealthy person, and that may say more about me than about God. You know? Because it's so easy to get attached to that kind of thing. Jesus was able to effectively keep his priorities in order and say, you know what? The Father has something else in mind for me, and I will follow and worship and obey him. Finally, the devil took Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple. And I have to believe that in this scenario, it was also quite real. The temple was the center of life for all of Israel. And any day in the temple, you could find hundreds of people in the courtyards uh, having uh, discussions and uh, various other things. And I believe the devil literally took Jesus up to the top of it. You say, well, what's going on here? I mean, this is kind of, how did he get there? And was it a ladder? No, I think he just took him there and there they were. In fact, we read in the scripture where other people, like Philip, were transported in the Holy Spirit. Uh, there are many cases of out-of-body kinds of experiences. This is not limited to God's power, the devil also has this power. And he can uh, do amazing things in the supernatural realm. I don't have trouble believing that. If you think I'm nuts, uh, I'm sorry. Um, study your scriptures and see if you can't uh, get a little more deeply into it. But I'm convinced that 
the devil took Jesus to the very top of the temple. And uh, they're standing there. I don't know what it would have been like to have been uh, a part of the crowd in the courtyard that day when someone, you know, just kind of looked up and went, Whoa! There's two guys up there. But what good would it have done to jump off the pinnacle of the temple if the only witness was the devil? That wouldn't have accomplished anything. There had to be some reality, some teeth to the temptation. And the temptation was, why don't you jump? And here the devil picks up the thread. Notice what he does. In the first two cases, how did Jesus respond? It is risen. So what does the devil do? It is risen. God has said that he will give his angels charge concerning you to bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. And the temptation is, again, you don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to become the, the leader of all of Israel by suffering on the cross. You can just jump off the top of this temple and the angels will come swooping down and catch you and bring you to a safe landing and everybody in Israel will worship you and praise you and, and you will instantly become the most popular leader that's ever been seen in this place. Don't ever lose sight of the fact that when the devil is tempting you, he is not beyond quoting Scripture if it suits his purposes. He will quote the Bible to you subtly out of context in order to make you feel like you're on safe ground. But Jesus saw through that temptation. And going back to Deuteronomy 6.16, where God was tested himself at the waters of Meribah. That's where Moses struck the rock twice and actually ruined his own chances for entering the promised land. And in that situation, God was fed up with these people. And Moses was fed up with them. And they had just kind of like reached the limit. Listen, you can keep pushing God until he gets to a point where he says, you know what, I've had enough. I've had enough. I'm just going to let you fall this time. I'm done messing around. You need to learn another way. And Jesus quoted that passage from Deuteronomy 6.16. It is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And in that situation, the devil left him, and the scripture says, for a little while. Friends, the kinds of temptations that Jesus was faced with, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, to be in authority, to be in control, to gain power through illegitimate means are the same kinds of temptations that every one of us face. In fact, if you go back to the Garden of Eden and you look at Adam and Eve after the fall, what's the first thing that happened? Well, the very first thing is when God showed up, they played the blame game. Uh, that woman you gave me, that serpent, 
They started trading blame. But the next thing is that God said to them, because you have done this, here's what's going to happen. Your desire, Eve, is going to be to control your husband. You're going to want to manipulate him and, and run roughshod over him and control him and coerce him and get him to do what you want. And I'm sorry to say, but he's going to turn into that couch potato and try to rule your household like a little king on his throne, and he's going to want to rule over you. That partnership, that beautiful romance, that divine connection, heart to heart, of having dominion, was suddenly shattered. And the desire to be responsible and benevolent leaders turned into vying for power over each other. And to this day, human beings still struggle with that temptation. And you know why we want to have power? Because we want to be in control. And when we're in control, we think we're safer. We think we're more secure. We think we've got the power. And we want to have that power. And the temptation is to grasp it for ourselves. God says, I will take care of you. In fact, you know, it's, you know, it's interesting. All the nations of the world already belong to Jesus. Psalm 2 makes that very plain. I have appointed the nations as your inheritance. They were already his. The temptation was just to get them out of time. And there it was. When you and I are tempted, friends, the temptation always comes along the lines of doubting God. Does he really love me? Is he really kind Does he really have my interest at heart? Has God really said that in the day you eat of it? Oh, he knows, he knows that when you eat this fruit, you're really going to be like him. And he's trying to keep that from you. He's trying to hold back on you. And and he doesn't want you to have all the fun and freedom and joy you could really have. God's not really very nice. That's in there, in the temptation. And the test is, do I believe that God is good even though I'm hungry? Do I believe that God is good even though there's a cross in my future? Do I believe God loves me and that he will care for me and that he will provide? Or do I want to be independent and assert my own will and take charge myself? Unbelief underlies every temptation and every sin. Unbelief. Jesus successfully navigated those waters so that he could say to us, when you're tempted, I've been there, I've faced that, I know how to deal with it, come boldly to me and get the help you need. Father, I pray that you would teach us this great truth that you care more about us than we could ever imagine and that you really want to help us in every case navigate the waters of temptation successfully. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.